Hey, my name's Emma. Hey, my name's Maddie. And you're listening to The Pilot's Pandemic. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Pilots Pandemic Podcast. You're here with your host, Emma, and our other host, Maddie. Hey, guys. And we are here today with our guest, Chris Nathan. Um, We actually connected with Chris through my spotlight in the AOPA magazine, which is super awesome. And I always love the power of connection. So, Chris, just give yourself a little bit of an introduction. Uh, Hi. Ladies, I'm really happy to be a part of this, uh, and I'm glad that we got connected via the <laughs> via the, the spotlight in the AOPA magazine. Uh, I'm uh, embroiled in a in a battle with the FAA over a third class medical, and uh, uh, when that article came out, my dad called me, was like, "You got to look this up. These people are doing exactly what you're doing. They can help you. You got to talk to them." Our favorite snack from our favorite female aviator. Avinola packs so much flavor that there are endless possibilities of concoctions that you can make with this granola. You guys, we are talking about recipes like mini keto cupcakes, tropical avinola collagen smoothies, buckwheat avinola cakes, avinola parfaits, and even chocolate granola bark. Go to the avinola Instagram page at avi under slash foods under slash co. That's at avi under slash f-o-o-d-s under slash c-o to get your hands on these recipes and order yourself some delicious granola made by a female aviator use code pilots pandemic for 15 percent off your order so at the start of each show we always want to ask our guests like how did you get into aviation and what kind of sparked that passion for you uh well that spark started really early on i'm actually a third generation pilot uh my my grandfather was in the army air corps he was a a flight engineer on b-18s he was stationed uh, on the island of oahu and uh, in the fall of 1941 he and nine of his friends went in on a on a taylor e2 they bought for 600 dollars between the 10 of them uh because they wanted to you know, they were they were flying as crewmen, but they wanted to be pilots. Uh, so they started training uh, in that little airplane. Um, and then, uh, you know, the Japanese had some other ideas about how that that winter was going to go. Uh, that airplane survived. He survived, uh, went on to fly. He was type rated in 40 some different airplanes, uh, spent a career in the Air Force flying everything. Um, he went on to work for the State Department. He literally built uh, he built the Air Force uh, for uh, the country of Laos. Um, wow. And then uh, my dad got his private in 1978. Um, he was working, he was a sky marshal. 
Uh, my mom was a stewardess, not a flight attendant, stewardess for Pan Am mm -hmm. or uh, a TWA, I mean. Uh, and then my dad uh, had a career change, you know, midlife. Uh, he got his instrument commercial um, and started flying Part 135. Uh, he went on to get multi, uh, he's ATP rated. He's been a bush pilot in Alaska for the last, I don't know, since the early 90s. Uh, and he's, you know, 20,000 hour pilot. Um, mm -hmm. So I started real young. I mean, I was, I grew up on the airport. Uh, my first job was, was uh, working for a family friend, uh, stripping paint on uh, airplane parts. I would, uh, I would wash bellies of everybody's airplanes to, you know, to make money uh, to go fly. There was a, a flight. This was in uh, Tucson, Arizona at Ryan Field. There was a, a flight school down the, just down the way from, uh, from the hangar we worked in, where my dad did his training, where my mom did her training, uh, called Snoopy's Flight School. And uh, the chief pilot there was a guy named Danny Gensman, who's uh, something of a legend. Uh, but they had a Cessna 150 that you could rent, or uh, it was an aerobat, you could rent for 20 bucks an hour. So I would wash bellies of airplanes to make enough money to go fly with, uh, with my dad. Um, and then all through high school, I was in Civil Air Patrol, um, I did some glider training. I started on uh, started on my A&P uh, through an apprenticeship program. Um, was just like absolutely embroiled in the in the life uh, until I went to college, and then you know wasn't uh, it wasn't in the cards for me, and I kind of drifted away. But uh, probably six years ago, I got the bug again. Started you know looking into it, started thinking about it, started uh, you know running numbers on what it would take, and then. Uh, in 2020, when uh, the world slowed down, uh, I own an audiovisual staging and rental company. Uh, our industry came to an absolute standstill. All business, like nobody could have meetings for that year. Uh, so I found myself with a lot of time on my hands and uh, decided that I wasn't going wasn't gonna to let 2020 slip past without making some personal progress. So I found a flight school and, and uh, started training. That's awesome. pretty amazing. Sorry, like aviation is just like part of you because I'm like, wow, you did a lot of like pathways doing, you said AMP, which is kind of cool. Um, and then you worked on the ground with the airplanes too. So, and I, I was like rolling over in my mind to the $20 an hour for <laughs> How crazy is that, right? <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, I that, was, that, that was, was wet still cost. That was, that was all in. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'm jealous. This was a long time ago. Yeah, I know. I, I was just thinking about that because well, my next question I was going to ask you, uh, talking about me, me going to ground school right now, and luckily, you know, it's free for me because my husband's a CFII, and so he's actually sure. doing my ground school for me, and then I'm hoping he can train me too because I think that would just be really special, but I'm like, if I don't have that, like, I'm going to have to pay quite a bit of money myself, um, so yeah, I wish that I could do the $20 an hour. That'd be pretty amazing. Um, but so with all of your background in aviation, and now that you've, you're going through this, obviously to get your third class medical, but you do have your PPL, right? I do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I started training um, uh, December of 2020. Uh, like December 3rd, I think was my first like actual, like let's log this flight. Uh, I soloed the end of that month. Uh, and I passed my check right in March of 21. Wow. So you went really fast through your- I did. Your I training. jumped right into it with both feet and- uh, You're and, amazing. And took it real serious. 
I don't know if I'll go that fast. Um, but I was going to ask you, like, what's one piece of advice you'd give me or any student pilot that's just starting out? Uh, I'll give you two pieces of advice, actually. Uh, number one, uh, this is what my instructor told me, and I think that she absolutely hit it on the head. Uh, if you can, do your ground school and your early flight training at the same time. Mm. Um, the lessons you're learning in one apply directly to the other. Um, and they make way more sense if you're practicing the things that you're learning about in ground school. Um, yes. That worked. It worked really well for me. It was like, you know, cause I did my, I did my ground school online uh, through uh, the sporties, the, the sporties course. And, yep. uh, and so, you know, at night I'd be, I'd be taking, you know, watching the videos and taking the quizzes and, and studying the stuff. And then I'd get up the next day and I'd go fly and it'd be like, Oh, this totally makes sense to me. Uh, you know, slow flight is, you know, it's so that you don't panic and you practice, you know, you're, you're landing without landing. It's like yes. all the, the lessons, they, like I said, they, they tie together so completely that if you do both at the same time, it'll all be easier. And then my second piece of advice, which is, is hard and it's expensive and uh, it's difficult, but do it as fly as much as you can and as often as you can, um, because it's all you know, it's, it's muscle memory and it's, and it's, you know, the brain power, you lose it way quicker than you think you're gonna. Um, so the, the more often you can fly to, you know, to get okay. through and apply the lessons and stack all the learning on top of it, you know, what you're, what you're learning, the skills, you know, they're, they're perishable skills, which is why the, why you got to do a biannual flight review, because, you know, if you're not using them, you're going to lose them. So especially in training, just do it. I was flying, you know, three, four times a week to try and uh, just get through it. And it, and it made it a whole lot easier. Like, oh yeah, yesterday I did this. So yes. That I'm, would be my advice. I'm definitely someone who is like that practical application, like really cements things into my mind. I'm a definite questioner. So I ask like tons of questions, which I think helps too. Um, but I am seeing like me not doing it in the plane. I can see how I could lose it quickly. So I love that you said that because I'm like, should I just start taking my flight lessons like now? Um, and now that you said that, that's a that's a yes. I should yes, hundred percent. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have to echo that message. I think that's both of those things were what I feel like I messed up with during my PPL. Um, I tried to bulk like our school wanted us to pretty much get all the ground school and the written out of the way as soon as possible. So I did the entire sporties PPL course. And I think like three weeks, I think it was like a month, a little over a month. Um, yep. And I had no clue. Like I went in to take <laughs> my written. I failed. I had no clue what was going on. Um, came back, studied really, really hard for another week and then went in past it. But the other part of that was I felt like I also was not able to fly as much as I wanted to. And then going into my IFR, I flew really, really consistently, I think like four days a week. And I got through my IFR really, really quick um, and super proficiently. So I definitely would have to say those are two solid pieces of advice. But um, so kind of moving on, I know we talked earlier and we've kind of hinted at it a little bit, but you've had a little bit of a hiccup with your medical. Um, so can you share more about this? Sure. Yeah. 
Uh, absolutely. Um, I guess we'll start at the beginning. In 2015, I went through, uh, you know, the American male rite of passage. Uh, that was my divorce year. Uh, and that was a that was a hard time for me. So I went uh, and I got some help. I went and found a psychiatrist and uh, they put me on uh, on an antidepressant. I was on an SSRI for uh, for about six months, um, which uh, I didn't really care for. Um, and so we switched me over to uh, to a uh, to a different drug. They put me on Wellbutrin, which is uh, uh, not on the FAA's approved list of antidepressants. Um, I got off it. And then uh, in 2017, felt myself like, oh, you know, maybe my brain should be working better. Went back, got some more help, uh, found an amazing psychiatrist, and she put me back on the Wellbutrin. And I was on it for a little over a year. Um, and then well before I started training, I, uh, I met with her. I was like, all right, I, I'm thinking about doing this. I want to, uh, I want to get my, uh, I want to get my rating. Um, let's talk through what it would take to safely get off this. She was oh, 100% on board. Um, so we, you know, weaned me off the drugs nice and carefully, and uh, and then gave it a fair amount of time before I even started to make sure that you know that we were doing everything uh, as carefully as possibly. But that particular um, antidepressant is, like I said, is not on the list of the four that are approved by the FAA, and uh, Wellbutrin particularly has a uh, uh, has a pretty specific stigma attached to it in regards to uh, aviation safety. Uh, so I applied for my third class medical when I started training. Uh, my uh, AME signed off on it, no problem. But you got to fill out, you know, any medications you've ever been on. I wasn't on any, but I filled out, you know, here's my history. And uh, it got flagged. Um, the FAA reached out, asked for some more information. I went to my brain doctor. She was like, oh, yeah, she and she took it real serious. She called them. She called the FAS in uh, uh, in Oklahoma City. Was like specifically, what do I have to do you know, to make sure this goes through? What do I have to send you to, you know, to prove that this is cool? Uh, they told her she sent everything. And uh, uh, about six weeks after my uh, about six weeks after my uh, check ride, I got a uh, I got a certified letter telling me that uh, my third class had been officially denied. And I've been uh, appealing and fighting ever since. How long has that uh, process been so far? Oof, that was uh, that was <laughs> uh, the FAA's got a got a real great sense of timing. That denial came on my birthday in uh, 2021, so May of 21, they said no. Uh, I appealed. They said no again in July of 21. Uh, I appealed again. They said no in must have been September of 21. And then uh, I tried to escalate it and uh, asked for a special issuance and uh, was waiting on that until just a few weeks ago. It finally came back, uh, the official no to the special issuance and the uh, and the third class. Wow. I'm sorry about that because I didn't realize that you had like the total denial now. Yep. Um, so one of the things that we talk about a lot is that, you know, the FAA has not expanded their drug list. There's only four SSRIs that you can take. 
And as Chris was saying, he has taken Wellbutrin and you kind of said it that there is a stigma attached, but that's what I wanted you to expand on um, because we had talked about this in our pre-pod conversation about how Wellbutrin has been stigmatized and there is a big reason why. So can you share with us why that is? Uh, yeah, there, uh, Wellbutrin uh, has a bad reputation for one very specific incident. Uh, in 2015, I think it was. Must have been 2015. Um, a uh, a co-pilot for German Wings, uh, an airline in Germany, um, was having some mental health issues. Took a whole cocktail of drugs that weren't his, uh, including Wellbutrin. Um, and then uh, while on a flight, escorted the pilot out of the cabin, locked the door behind him, and purposefully crashed uh, an A320 into a mountain with 150 people on board. Um, and the aviation safety community as a whole took that real seriously. And uh, Will Beatron immediately got put on a list of um, drugs that are considered dangerous for pilots, which is uh, is a real shame because he wasn't, he wasn't even prescribed it. Um, it's something yeah. he took to try and like self-medicate himself out of whatever he was going through. Uh, and I know a lot of people who have been on Wellbutrin and it's, it does a lot of good. It did me a lot of good. Yeah. It's uh, interesting. Cause you had pointed out too, that it, it's not specifically the FAA that made this rule. It was Congress who made that rule and it right. was kind of like a reactionary yes. um, rule because he took that. So that's the German wings has really been huge on stigmatizing mental health and aviation. And then, then uh, it's pretty sad. Like that. I think his name is Andre Lepkowitz, um took Wellbutrin um, and he wasn't prescribed it. And now they've just said, Nope, no one can take it um, because they just associate those two things happening together by taking Wellbutrin, You maybe do the same thing, which is completely untrue. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's very frustrating. It is. It's interesting that they still like that. There's such a, like a, a stigma about it that even after you being off of it for a certain amount of time, like they're still just hard pressed with that. No. Um, and it's interesting because I wonder like if it was any other drug, like say he had taken Lexapro or something like that, which is one of the approved for, would they feel the same way about that? I don't know. It's just, I don't know. Kind of sucks. It really sucks. Actually, it doesn't kind of suck. It majorly sucks. Um, And I think that's a conversation that Maddie and I have a lot is like, they definitely need to put more thought and science and research more about these drugs before drawing such a hard line in the sand. But um, so as we all know, there's so many facets to obtaining a medical, especially after you diagnose or disclose any kind of diagnosis. But what has been the hardest part about this process for you? Um, like an example, just like simply letting go of the identity. Has any of that been hard for you? Uh, yeah, yeah. The identity has been, has been huge. Um, cause I, you know, I had a plan <laughs> for how things were going to go and uh, what airplane I wanted to buy and where I wanted to put it and, and how I wanted to, you know, trips I wanted to take with my kids and things I wanted to be able to do that are now, uh, 
pretty seriously backburnered. Um, but I'd say the most frustrating part of it is ah, the lack of information and lack of transparency, uh, as well as the, I mean, just the impartial nature of the process. Um, you just, you, you submit your paperwork and you hope for the best. And, you know, there's a, there's a hotline you can call to check on the progress and all they'll tell you is whether or not they've got it. Uh, they won't give you any information as far as what it is going to happen or what, you know, what their decision is going to be. And you just, you're just stuck waiting uh, with no information for however long it takes. And it takes a long time. Uh, it's been, you know, it's been two years of, of dealing with this for me. And, uh, you know, the, the entirety of communications over that two years has been, you know, 150 phone calls on my end to them, which just got me, yes, we've got it. It's under review. And then, you know, four letters in the mail, essentially. Um, uh, and then, you know, people who've never met me, have never spoken to me, you know, that just look through my records and decided for me yeah. is, uh, mm. is that that's the, that's one of the most heartbreaking parts of this, you know, that the doctor who did treat me um, through the issues I was having, you know, advocated for me, probably the most positive uh, doctor patient relationship I've ever had. Uh, as far as somebody who just like really believed in in working with me to to get better and uh, and helping me through whatever, and then actively advocating for me in this process with the FAA, and then somebody who's never never met me, never spoken to me, goes, nope. Yeah, that's uh, that's real frustrating. It's baffling to me how that another just that's like another thing that Maddie and I always speak about. It's just. I, I don't understand why they've why they figure that having somebody who really knows nothing about you, uh, regardless of what they're reading on paper, versus somebody who's known you, been treating you for you know however many years, um, it just it's like they they ask for these letters and they want you to prove all this stuff to them, but it almost feels like it means nothing in the long run because they're gonna come up with whatever opinion they feel like based off of what they're reading um which just doesn't I don't know I just don't feel like you can make an accurate diagnosis when you don't even really know the person well that combined with the you know just really outdated standards that they're uh yeah. that they're using that's the that's the biggest issue it's the it's the DSM that the that the uh that the regs are based on versus you know the modern medical take on on mental health are two very different documents so yeah. yeah and we're gonna get into that but i real quick i just want to ask you Chris, like when you were going in to apply for your third class and going through the special issuance did your dad or your family have anything to say since they already have like no kind of the whole aviation system and they probably were aware of the air medical process did they give you like a warning or anything like that or were they just like yeah do it you'll be fine uh yeah <laughs> uh my dad uh is in the middle of the same same issue he's waiting on a on his medical to get reinstated and has been mm -hmm. for uh i think three years at this point um so he he had some uh some pretty salty advice for me basically uh a pretty cynical take on it uh because he's stuck in the same boat um, yeah but as far as specific like here's how to do it or here's how to you know what hoops to jump through no and uh, and that's that's been real frustrating is that nobody uh, nobody seems to know how to how to navigate the system. 
are not nobody, but not very many people. I mean, the people who who kind of know or are close to it are the ones who have navigated it and either been accepted or have been denied. And typically the people that have been denied are like, don't say anything. Yeah. Yep. And the ones who have gotten their medical in the end are like, oh, it's all going to be fine. It's great, good, and uh, all good and gravy or whatever. And and uh, it is interesting to talk to people who have gone through the system and had different outcomes and, and what they think. But like you said, at the end of the day, the system does need to be updated. That is the problem is that it is so archaic and there are so many different areas that it could be updated um, and and obviously just become more efficient that um, that's why you have these totally different viewpoints coming up for how to deal with your medical and going through a special issuance process. But um, if you could update the air medical process, what do you think you'd change about it and why? Uh, if I could change the, the whole system, <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a, that's a great question uh, because it's so, it's like <laughs> yes well, i mean it's, or if you it's, could change like one thing about it like one thing that you think would be make a big deal sure uh i'd say number one would be you know move to move to a, a modern uh take on mental health uh you know up, upgrade to the to the you know at least the dsm-5 and get you know or 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 take uh you know take seriously the the you know the medical opinions of medical doctors who are treating patients versus the regulatory, you know, take on it in mm -hmm. Oklahoma city and Washington, that, that would be step one. Like there's, it's two different, two different languages being spoken there and, and there's no translation between um, and it leaves people like me high and dry. Yeah. So our listeners are probably like wondering what is the, like, what is the DSM? Cause I know, Obviously, we've spoken about it. You just mentioned it, and we have touched on it a little bit on the show. But basically, um, it's a standard system that utilizes, like that the FAA utilizes based on medical diagnoses pertaining to mental health. So right now, the FAA is operating on, with a or on DSM-3, um, and DSM stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And currently, if this is correct, I believe we are at DSM-6. So that means the FAA is like three iterations behind, um, which is kind of nuts. And I wish that we had the dates for all of these because I believe like DSM-3 came out like the 70s or the 80s the, the dsm-3 was started like they started putting it together in 1974 it was published in 1980 hmm. uh, and then there was a revision nuts. to the dsm-3 the dsm-3r came out in 87 which I, again is just i remember really, really mind-blowing it was a long time ago <laughs> that was before i was born and i'm That's... 34 years old yeah <laughs> Just even the way that we perceive mental health and the way that we go about dealing with mental health issues, um, even in the past two years has changed just so significantly. And then to think about something that's that old, it's just 
yeah, mind bottling. But um, so can you share, which you kind of did already share with our audience, like when the DSM three came out, but how does this affect you and how has it affected you throughout this whole process with your medical? So uh, that's interestingly enough. uh, I just was able to uh, uh, review uh, my records uh, and look at you know, what my treating psychiatrist, uh, you know, how she described my, uh, my mental health issues. Uh, and it's listed per the DSM-5, like specific, like there's a, there's a code, like a, assigned to every mental health issue that could be. Um, and mine is, de- is defined as a major depressive disorder, uh, mild. Uh, the term mild doesn't exist in the DSM-3, it's major depressive disorder. You either have it or you don't, right? There's no, there, there's not the, the, the spectrum of, of um, severity, I guess would be the term. Um, so when my, when, you know, when you look at my, my medical records and you see this, you know, major depressive disorder, mild, you go, oh, okay, mild. Well, if the regs are based on a, on a system that's, literally 35 plus years old that doesn't include that the idea of mild not just the term but the idea uh didn't exist in that you know in that book so therefore that's what uh gets applied to my denial Hmm. it's just so interesting how they how they deal with things and and honestly we've talked to i think it was bart johnson who we talked to as well and he said his he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but he totally believes he doesn't have that. Um, and he, but he can't get re-diagnosed now because he's already got his um, denial of, of his medical. Um, so he's okay with it, but he really believes like if he if he would have been it would have been up to date to the DSM that that it is now that his diagnosis would have been different, and therefore he he may have been issued a medical. Um, and that's kind of the troubling thing is that the system is not updated and so you're basing it off of all of these old things and lots of people are being punished for disclosing and for being honest exactly and oh, go ahead i i just can imagine it's so frustrating to like you you've put all this time and effort and work into not only getting your medical but your mental health and then just to be stamped as something that you're not um I don't know. That just seems really frustrating. Well, and the fact that you realistically have to make a choice between the two. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's you know, I take my mental health very seriously. Um, I went through, I went through a lot to get to where I am now. Um, and I don't, I don't take it lightly. I work very hard at it. And I've got a lot of, a lot of processes in place to make sure that I stay you know, where I'm supposed to be, um, mental health wise. But like the idea that if I, if I was having trouble, my go-to, like if, you know, I, I have certain, certain benchmarks that I, that I compare myself to and I look at where I'm at. And if I get to a certain point, you know, the, the answer is go get help, right? Call up, mm-hmm. call up my doctor, you know, make an appointment, go make a visit, figure out what's going on, you know, get some therapy, 
uh, that that choice has to be now weighed against what that's going to look like on my, you know, in my FAA medical records. Now, mm -hmm. for me, that choice is that choice is easy. I'm going to choose my mental health uh, because I really want to be a pilot. I've wanted to be a pilot my whole life. It's a thing I I want very badly uh, for my future. But it's not my it's not my livelihood. It's not my you know if if my medical continues to be denied at this point, it's you know I still get to go to work tomorrow. Um, I still have a career and a future. Uh, but for a lot of pilots, that's not an option. You got to make that choice, and you go well as soon as I as soon as I admit that there's an issue and go get help. You know now I'm stigmatized, and this could be the end of you know, end of my career. And yeah. that's just, that is so far beyond heartbreaking. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a travesty. So I have a question that I didn't script in. Um, I was just wondering if you are willing to tell me how much money do you think that you've spent on the whole special issuance process and trying to get your medical back? Uh, well, the, the, the process thus far has all been just me. Um, I did it all on my own. So it didn't have not, it hasn't cost me anything yet. Um, okay. However, I'm pursuing a, a legal route now. Um, and I don't know what that's going to cost. It hasn't, uh, we haven't tallied that up yet. But I don't think it's going to be cheap. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, well, either you you pay for all the doctors and you go through that whole special insurance process. Um, but now you're on the other side of it. And you're just trying to get uh, non-denial, right? Like, and yep. is that? Do you think that that's possible? Uh, I do. I do think it is possible. Um, we've got a we've got a plan of action um, that we're working towards. Uh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, I don't know how long it's going to take, and I don't know how much it's going to cost. Is part of that uh, um, getting a like re-diagnosis or getting that diagnosis kind of reversed? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Do you think that they're really heavily focused on you taking Wellbutrin though? Um, I don't know. I think, I think, uh, I think that plays pretty heavily into it. Um, the fact that I've been off of it for four years at this point, um, one would hope would weigh into that decision, but, yeah. uh, I, yeah, I don't, it's, you know, I, I researched, you know, a lot when I, uh, when I decided to, you know, prior to even starting flight training, when I decided I wanted to and was looking at getting off and off the Wellbutrin and talking to my doctor about it, like I did a lot of research on what, how that was going to affect me. And, uh, and what I'm afraid of <laughs> coming up is, is what I found on a number of, you know, a number of forums and people talking about it was that uh, what they really want to see is 10 years um, wow. off of the drug. Jesus. So, yeah. So I could, if, if that's the standard they're going to hold me to on this particular, uh, this particular problem that I'm looking at, at, uh, six more years of waiting. Oh, yeah. Feels like a lot. That is, um, we're actually, Emma and I have something coming up with, uh, talking to an aviation subcommittee expert. And I did put that on one of the action points is like updating the drugs and taking Wellbutrin off of the no-go drug list and I thought of you when I put it down I was like <laughs> I'm so so happy I have this on there um but it is it's just so archaic and I can't believe they'll they are so distrusting you know like it's not like this drug is still in your system obviously right. 
Um, but what, like, why a 10 year benchmark? Like, what in the world? That makes no sense. <laughs> so, uh, that's another thing. It's like, where do they come up with these numbers and these timelines for, for the drugs that you take? Cause you know that it's not in their system anymore. Uh, you have a doctor that's advocated for you and said that you're good to go. And like you said, you sent your paperwork in, you're just a, another number to them. They've never seen you. They don't know you. And they're just basing it off of what they see on paper. Um, right. And I really think that's just not right. And Well, and the fact that the fact that the only actual human that I interacted with in the process was the AME who did my medical exam, just like every other pilot you got to go to an ame and you got to get an exam i got that exam and he signed off on it like he approved my medical i had a i had an approved third class medical in my pocket when i started flight training mm -hmm. um and the fact that that he just gets overridden by you know by a by a set of codes written by somebody else um uh, you know and i i talked to him <laughs> i talked to him about it like i was up front with him in the process and he was like, I got no, he's like, I have no hesitation signing off of this. I'm like, great, let's go. Yep. That's quite a bit of aviators that we talk to is like my AME or the, you know, my CFI or whoever I'm flying with who sees me every day, they feel safe enough to fly with me and they yeah. feel safe enough to write me off and say that I'm fit to fly. But yep. some Yahoo at OKC is saying no. Um, yeah exactly dusty farts yeah <laughs> well and the, the the first the first like clarification letter that came from the faa post my like i went to the me i had the exam he signed off on it he said you're probably going to hear from them they're going to have some questions i was like okay so i was ready for that and it came during my training i got a certified letter from the faa saying here's the you know submit all your records uh, we're not, you know, we, we're unable to, uh, well, how did they, they word it? We're unable to approve, you know, without more information, not denying it, but saying, Hey, send us more stuff. And I took that to my flight instructor who I had already been flying with and was like, here's what I'm up against. And, uh, she was like, okay, well let's, you know, let me talk to my, let me talk to my chief pilot and, and see what they, you know, what they think. And they came back and all of them were like, well, you're, you're doing great in training. We have no, you know, we don't not want to fly with you. Um, but the, the overwhelming consensus there was keep going um, until they say, no, it'll be way easier to fight this with a PPL than without, um, mm -hmm. you know, to get certified and then try to re you know, re go back after my third class versus um, if I halted training, you know, you can't even start training without a third class. Like, yeah, they yeah. were like, hammer down, let's go. And, you know, I was already in that mode anyway, but that, that motivated me even more to just get through it and, and uh, make sure I get it done. Which is so smart. And I'm, I'm really glad that they gave you that advice because I feel like, you know, it's almost like having the FAA vouch for you in a sense, because you have to pass the same tests and get, it's all the same exam that everyone else has to do. So if you're proficient enough to pass, you know, like, how can they, you know, by their own standard, look at you and be like, oh, well, you know, um, but another thing that kind of boiled up in my mind as we were having that conversation is just the fact that the, 
I don't know, just like medical efficacy kind of seems to go out the window because like, like you said, your doctor vouched for you. And I can imagine, you know, when you're vouching for someone like that, and you're writing these letters, you're kind of putting yourself on the line a little bit there professionally and ethically. And for them to kind of throw that out the window completely to me also is really nuts as well is is um, insulting yeah yeah, yeah. I, yeah I actually i feel bad for my uh for my psychiatrist and the fact that she advocated so hard for me you know wrote an actual wrote an impassioned letter um explaining you know my whole history here's you know here's what we've been up against and, and here's why i think it's okay uh for them to go well you don't know what you're talking about you know we know better than you because we have this book from 1980 <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> thump you over that with it. I haven't practiced <laughs> real medicine in literally decades, but exactly. Okay. Yep. But so, last question for you, and thank you again for like opening up and kind of having this thought process with us and having this conversation because it is really important. Um, but yeah, so. I, I know you're positive so that you'll get your medical back, which is awesome to hear um, because I feel like it's always real heartbreak when I hear somebody like give up. Um, and I'm just, I'm glad to hear that you're going to keep on fighting. So what is your overall goal with aviation? Ooh, um, <laughs> I, uh, I want an airplane real bad. Um, I, you know, just I, the, the physicality of airplanes speaks to me and it always has from when I was just a little kid. Um, yeah. The smell, the way that just the, the, the smell. The, I love that you said that. That's a big I, one for the, me. The airplanes have, the, and they all have individual personality. Um, mm -hmm. And the, honestly, the, the reality of, of the, of the state of general aviation today is that most airplanes that you encounter are older than you yeah. right the yeah. idea that you don't really own an airplane that you you kind of steward it for a while until it's time for somebody else right yeah that mm -hmm. just i i love that idea so much i just i i want an airplane i want an airplane i want to be able to take it out i want to be able to take care of it i want to be able to upgrade it and not upgrade it and have it be a <laughs> just what i really want is to find that that Taylor E2 that my grandfather bought in 1941 um, because it supposedly survived the war. Um, my dad and I have been on a quest to try and find that particular airframe and uh, haven't, uh, haven't come up with it yet, but wow. I think that would be, that would be an absolute <laughs> dream come true to find that thing. That definitely uh, speaks to me because I'm also in the process of trying to get my dad's Cessna 172 back as well because he owned it for a few years he sold it before he married my mom and I found it it's still in Washington state luckily uh and I just wrote like an impassioned letter to the <laughs> owner and was yep. like hey we are linked even though you don't know me and uh please give me your airplane <laughs> <laughs> but yes that's it's such a fun goal to have and you know, airplanes are expensive. So, you know, like when you own one, it's definitely like this huge passion project. And yep. um, I really hope that you guys find find the plane. That would be amazing. It would be.
Um, are we moving on to uh, fun questions here, Emma? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, so we always like to end the show with fun questions, get to know you on an even more intimate level. So what is an irrational fear that you have, Chris? Uh, I'll tell you an irrational fear that I had uh, for decades. I was I was absolutely convinced that if I drove over a paint test strip on a freeway, you know, like where they where they do the stripes to test the like resilience of freeway paint, I was convinced that if I drove over one of those, that I would spontaneously combust. <laughs> and so I would, man, if I saw one coming, I'd swerve over to the other lane, and and uh, yeah, people would make fun of me for years. That was I just had that in my head. I don't know why. It was ridiculous. Uh, I've conquered that fear. I am able to now drive over paint tests without uh, oh, so much funny. of a twitch. <laughs> I'm glad you overcame that fear. <laughs> Me too, because it was real dumb. What Emma? Do you have an irrational fear? Um, I I like was thinking about this, and I don't know. I, submarines, like I hate submarines, and every single time I swim, it's all I think about. And I know that's really silly, and that's very dumb. But ever since I was little, that's just been my irrational fear. And I love swimming; like swimming is my favorite activity. But it just, it lingers in the back of my mind. I don't like the idea of um, like inanimate objects in the ocean, like man-made objects in particular. Um, When I was little, we used to like, where I'm from, this big open water, we used to swim down to the bottom and like grab a handful of sand or like seashells (laughs) or something. And my worst fear was I was either going to swim down and grab like a crab pot or I was going to hit a submarine. Those were the two things that always. <laughs> that is a out. that is a quality irrational fear. <laughs> Very that specific. is. I was like, I can't, I never thought about that because I, you know, I'm a lake girl. I grew up on a lake too, and I never thought about submarines. It was always like, uh, like the sturgeons, like the six foot sturgeons that I thought about. Oh, yeah. Um, but my irrational fear, I would have to say, like birds flying in or around my head anywhere I always feel like they're gonna bite me or do something crazy like I do not I'm not a fan of birds um so and there's a bunch of them here in Bellingham Bay there's so many uh seagulls so you might have they're either gonna shit on me or they're going to come (laughs) after my face like those are the two things I always think about they say that people like there's like a connection to people that have OCD and people not liking birds. I read that somewhere. I feel like it was like a Vice News article or something like funky like that. But immediately <laughs> I was like, hmm. And you are very organized. So maybe, maybe there's OCD, a connection. Though. I'm very organized. I have like my, I have like 10 planners. That's true. I would uh, say I'm but, more OCD than you for sure. Yeah, My <laughs> husband though. Every time we leave the house, he's like, did you turn the stove off? Did you blow out the candles? I'm like, I didn't even light candles. He has to ask me that. <laughs> and then he's like, I'll lock the door right in front of him. And he has to check the handle and make sure it's locked. So I know that I'm not OCD because of him. That is funny. I will literally wake up in the dead of sleep to make sure that the door, the front door is locked. Like, that's another <laughs> irrational fear, I think. And that's not even an irrational fear. That's just like a fear that... Yes somebody's gonna be in my house (laughs) (laughs) well it could happen um 
But moving on. Okay, so we got past our rational fears. Now we're going into a totally different question. Uh, I'll start with you, Chris. What's one of your most favorite books or genres that you like to read? Uh, my all-time favorite book is uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Um, I haven't read it. Oh, it's heartbreaking and haunting and beautiful and all of the things. Uh, I made the mistake of reading it on a on an airliner <laughs> and I was uh just weeping <laughs> the person sitting next to me was looking at me like I was nuts but uh it's uh it's fantastic fantastic well, I've read a lot of uh his books and they're all real good but uh that one in particular is uh is amazing I wrote it down so that I could read it because I'm I love reading so I am definitely gonna have to read that I uh my favorite book of all time is called Shantaram and it's based in India it's about uh this Australian guy it's a true story he was imprisoned in Australia and he escaped and he went to India and he took his life to Bombay was before Mumbai was called Mumbai it's it was Bombay and then he talks about all of the things he did there and really gets into the culture and uh, he actually joined like a militia and it's just very interesting, very detailed. I love the way that he writes and it really like was like, it made me think I need to go to India now. So that is by far my favorite book. What about you, Emma? I haven't like done a lot of reading, but when I was in high school, I was homeschooled. So my mom like made me read, there was like a lot of books in my curriculum, but I realized that oh, like reading is kind of like watching television and I could basically read all day and pretend like I'm learning. Um, So books were like the biggest getaway for me during high school. But I, like I said, I haven't really read much. My favorite book is The Once and Future King. I cannot remember who it's by, Um, but it's a huge book. It's about King Arthur and Merlin, but it's kind of a twist on the story. It's a super old story, but it's about yeah. um, Merlin and Arthur growing up together. Um, That's T.H. White, isn't it? Yes. Yep. I knew I knew it ended in the name White, but I was like gonna say I think it's White, but that's super generic. Um, <laughs> but how do you know about that book? Because not a lot of people do. Um, I read a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, that's one of my favorites and it's definitely one that like I can always go back to and read, but I definitely have to say like a period piece for me. Like I like to be transported somewhere in time, but I don't like sci-fi or futuristic stuff at all. Hmm. I'm like, a, I like memoirs, like real life stories about people's lives. And I read a lot of different like influential people books because they're like, I don't know if they're like inspiring but it's kind of crazy where they started their life and then where they ended up so and so i if love you wanna, if you want to if you want a true story period piece that would fit right in with your with your podcast try uh wind sand and stars hmm. uh, it's a, a autobiography essentially by uh antoine de saint exbury he was a, a pilot back when piloting was not a thing um, through the deserts of Africa and Ooh. many, many crazy adventures. Have so, you read Beryl like Markham's book? Who? Beryl Markham? No. Oh, 
she's a female aviator and she also did like bush flying in africa and oh. she's she's a great writer right on yeah you just remind me of that when you said Africa. That's I was literally about to say, I was like, this is reminding me of a recommendation that someone made. Um, it was me. But it was that book. <laughs> yep. Yes, that was an amazing book. Um, but yeah, okay. Now that we talked about reading, it's like, I just actually got into reading like in the last few years. So um, I've been going to town. Last last year was my, my New Year's goal was to read 34 books in a year and I did it. So I'm trying to maintain that goal each year. But anyways, last question for you, Chris, is if you're having a bad day, what is something that can instantly cheer you up? Oh, uh, that's easy. Uh, my kids. Oh, I have uh, I have two teenage girls. They are an absolute riot <laughs> to be around. Um, so uh, <laughs> if uh, if they're around me, then I then we just hang out and do stuff. And if they're not, then I uh, I'll send them a Marco Polo or a, or a funny text or a or a joke. And um, yep, that's my kids for sure. I love, I love that. that. Yeah, that's so cute. Um, Emma, what about you? What will cheer you up? Swimming. Swimming. I love swimming. Like I said, I love swimming and I would say my boyfriend, but let's just put boyfriend aside. I have to choose <laughs> swimming. Like there's something really, I don't know. It just always makes me feel better. It always gives me a sense of like childlike happiness. Um, so yeah, easy peasy swimming. <laughs> Hell yeah. What about you? I would say there's so many. I'm simple. Like it's kind of easy to cheer me up. Uh, but I think because me and my brother, I have a twin brother. So when we were little, like it was like really simple things that we would do to kind of like get us into a better mood. So we'd take our change down to the gas station and like buy a diet Pepsi <laughs> and we'd have like all pennies and the lady would have to count it out so now it's like that's what I equate to like happiness like if I'm in a bad mood I'm like I just need to go get a big gulp down at the sticks and I'll feel better (laughs) so that's what I do coca-cola is gonna love that that's a great little marketing like (laughs) seriously no but like my dad used to do that too for us. So like he, whenever he, we got in like a, you know, a little tiff, cause I love Chris that you said your teenage girls, you guys get along so well. Cause I was like a rotten child when I was a teenager. So, but my dad would do the same thing. He would go and get me a big, huge diet Pepsi soda. Like if he ever got mad at me and then he'd give it to me and instantly I'd be like, so happy. So I, I'm, I'm simple. That it's reminds me of like when I was a kid, I, my dad used to take us places and we, if it was somewhere we didn't want to go, you know, we kind of would throw fit, but he knew exactly how to settle us all down. He'd stop at this one gas station and they had, um, bug juice and jungle juice and the bug juice was fun because it had bugs on it and it had kind of like the cool bottle top but the jungle juice was a better juice and it came in a carton um so either one if we were going to get one or the other instantly day made so happy and that came across like I think my TikTok um the other day somebody was talking about bug juice and it literally made me smile so big it brought me straight back yes it's like, like instant ooh, nostalgia. Yes. 
Love that. That's probably why we associate so much happiness with it is because it's like a total sugar rush. Exactly. (laughs) Which isn't too bad, but all right, we are going to wrap up this week's episode. Chris, thank you so much again for joining us. I love this conversation and I'm wishing you all the best of luck. Thank you so very much for letting me come on and tell my story. Uh, I think the more the people know about this issue and 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 hear about these, uh, you know, hear stories about people that are going through this, um, the better. Yeah, yes. definitely have to second that. Well, that is it. Like I said, for this week, um, thank you all so much for joining us. Always remember to hit the bell or whatever hit like subscribe whatever your little heart is feeling and remember to keep the blue side up and the brown side down we'll see you all next week